0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Uh, today we have on Francesca Barone. Um, she is a close friend. Her and I dated for a minute back in the day. We didn't talk about that on the podcast, but uh, it's still true. And uh, I met her through Go For Your Win um, a couple years ago. Uh, while we were together, we went and did ayahuasca together. It was both of our first time. And, um, the reason she's on the podcast is because since that time, uh, she has gone on to serve and, uh, create her own ayahuasca retreat center with her partner, Niels. And it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Cause I saw where she was at in her life before going through these experiences And she's very open about it on the podcast. Uh, She struggled deeply with um, dysfunctional relationships, addictions, uh, self-worth, stories that were crippling. And now she's bringing small intimate groups of people to uh, one of the most indigenously respectful uh, ayahuasca centers that I'm aware of. And uh, I wanted to have her on the podcast just to share her story of transformation and how it's birthed her into this new phase of her life that is fundamentally of service. And that feels like the core of everything that I hope my transmission and vibration and storytelling and art creation can do for people is to bring them to the experiences and the story-making abilities to create enough inner healing to then go serve. Um, It's not just about becoming obsessed with always trying to, quote-unquote, do your inner work, but it's to do enough so that you can serve from a place of genuine love for people becoming better and not from a place of I'm trying to be worthy or I'm trying to be good enough, or I'm trying to be safe, or I'm trying to earn enough money, power or fame to be liked by the person from my past that I couldn't get love from. And it's an interesting tension that is in the spiritual community of, um, I think there's this weird tension between selfishness and self fullness. And that there's a pretty big echo in our culture that gaslights any self fullness as selfishness. And that um, a part of quote unquote doing the work and the invitation of the spiritual community is you're probably lacking in some self that the tender, little body that your consciousness inhabits is asking for and that it needs some tending, but that the goal is to tend to a point of resilience where you can go out into the world and make change and help. Because the life that we live in, uh, there are a lot of problems out here. There are a lot of things that could be better if loving, engaged, hopeful, and wholeful people um, stepped up to, and this is just a great story that encapsulates what it is that I feel like um, I would love to see more in the world. And as always, if you want to stay connected, uh, join my newsletter at ericgotzi.com dot com and uh, share this podcast with anyone that you think it will genuinely serve. And without further ado, oh, real quick. Um, The name of her uh, retreat center is called Anamkara, and there's a point at the end where she'll give all the details about that. And now, without further ado, welcome to the myth of Francesca. Welcome to the podcast, Francesca. Um, It's really interesting how time, like, winks at us. the first time that I met you in person was the first time that I coached a group through go <laughs> for your win. Uh, this was now probably like two, three years, three years ago, three years ago. And, um, I'm seeing you again for the first time in a long time for the go for your win graduation weekend that's happening this weekend. And A lot of super dope stuff has happened between us over the course of that time. Uh, One of the most interesting ones, and I think the one that will seed the conversation today is, uh, you and I ended up going to Sultara to do ayahuasca together for the first time. And now you are a, is it accurate to say a co-founder? of a medicine retreat center that is truly one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, like the um, videos and the pictures from it. And I think what would be a beautiful story for people to hear today is what was the journey that brought you to ayahuasca for the first time? What was the really interesting transformational journey that happened after you drank that first cup? (laughs) Yeah. And what brought you to the point now where you are now one of the people that I recommend people to go sit with. And I knew you before you knew anything about ayahuasca. I was with you when you drank it for the first time and how difficult that was yeah. on the levels that it was. Mm-hmm. So uh thank you for doing the work in the way that you have and for coming on the podcast, and I'm super excited to hear your story and to share it with our audience.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited too.
0: So where do you want to start to pull the thread of this story?
1: <clears throat>
0: Once upon a time, an Italian woman was born. Actually, an yeah. Italian girl. <laughs>
1: Sicilian. Get off. Um, well, I guess when I met you, um, you know, I had a very different life at that time. I was very sick very addicted, not doing well, um, which is what led me to go for your win, which is what led me to you being my coach for the first time. And then after that journey kind of started and I started healing myself, I remember, you know, I had heard of ayahuasca and I had taken psychedelics before, you know, recreationally, but I had heard of ayahuasca. Hashtag fish concerts. (laughs) Um, You know, I had heard of ayahuasca, but it definitely was not something on my radar. And, um, you know, we, we really connected because of my dream space. That was one of the biggest things. Just a really long history of intense and vivid dreams, so much so as a child. My parents would take me to the doctor, and the doctor wanted to give me medication to help me stop dreaming because it was becoming so intense as a child. I was having trouble often, you know, what was real, what was not, and it was really starting to affect me. And um that carried on through my teens and through my 20s as well. And when we, you know, started getting closer, I remember it was three days before I had this dream about ayahuasca that you first told me, journal your dreams. Get a separate journal from your other journal because you were telling me to also journal (laughs) during the daytime. Um, Get a separate journal and keep it by your bed and journal, journal your dreams. And, um, it was three days exactly from that day I went to sleep and I had this incredible dream. Um, you know, part of go for your win was, you know, a lot of what you were speaking at that time and still do was about telling the truth. And I had been a compulsive liar and an addict for a really long time. And so telling the truth, this big challenge for me. And it was in the first weeks of Go For Your Win when I made that commitment to speak the truth, no matter what, the whole truth. And that's really when everything changed for me. tends to do that. Yeah. So I was on this commitment, this goal of telling the truth, no matter what, which was already bringing up a lot of parts, a lot of protectors, a lot of things. And I went to sleep and I had this dream um, that I was standing in this line with hundreds of people at a walking into a concentration camp. And my mom was standing next to me. And we were approaching the booth where this man in a Nazi uniform was going to ask us if we were Jewish. And my mom is leaning down to me. I'm a little girl. And she's saying, make sure you tell them we're not Jewish. We're not Jewish, even though my my female lineage is Jewish. Um, So she was telling me to lie. And It was like in the movie, Liar, Lie Her, when he can't say the pen pen is blue. (laughs) The color of the pen is blue. Um, I couldn't lie. Like I had made this commitment and in the dream, my lips literally wouldn't speak if it wasn't going to be honest. And so my mom goes up to the booth and they ask her, are you Jewish? She says, no, she lies. And they let her free. I come up to the booth and they ask me and I say that I am. And they lock me away in a cell. And they take this hot iron and they brand a formula into my arm, a formula I've never seen before. And um, I'm in this cell for many days, you know, it's terrible. And one night I fall asleep in the cell and I'm dreaming and this green spirit comes to me in the cell, this woman, and she hands me a cup and she says, drink this and you'll come with me. I'll set you free. Whoa. And I drink the cup, and I'm freed, and I have the dream, and I write it down. And it was a few days later that I saw something on your social media, on your goal pyramid, and the formula at the top that was like F equals T plus L, that formula of your mantra, or I don't know what you call it. Um, That was what was branded into my wrist in the dream. And oh. I had never seen it before, at least in my conscious mind. i I didn't think I had seen it before. Um, and so I told you about the dream, and it felt like it was ayahuasca. And then I think it was like a week later that we got an email from Soltara inviting you down. <laughs> so it feels like it wasn't really up to me. I mean, I guess it was on my radar, but that was really the first journey that led me there. Um, and then everything changed.
0: There's so many. Awesome threads about that. But I think the two that I want to highlight. Um, what is
1: that formula? Will you say it?
0: I don't remember it off the top of my head, but it's something like um, the truth plus love equals grace, I think is I have what it faith was.
1: That faith equals T plus L, truth and love. Right. Multi- multiplied by grace.
0: Yeah. 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 Actually, that's exactly it. Yeah. Damn, Eric, that was pretty good. We should probably <laughs> rewrite that down because I don't have that somewhere. <clears throat> um, the two things that I want to highlight uh, before we get to the your, like your first experience with ayahuasca because yeah. that's incredible, and then what that turned into is um, one of the like stories I'm really passionate about advocating for throughout my life is helping parents understand how to interpret some of the harder-to-interpret signals from their children that get confused in our culture that something is wrong with your child when something is absolutely not wrong in the way that we've been taught to see it as being wrong. Like a, a really poignant example is, you know, if you have a child that won't pay attention inside of a classroom where they're being taught things that have that because we now live in a context where if they had access to their phone and they had any type of problem solving skills almost everything being taught in almost every class in high school has no real world applicability
1: yeah
0: and then they don't pay attention and then we say that they have attention deficit disorder yeah and then we give them methamphetamines yeah and they're seven and then there's you know Uh, some children that have the spark in their psyche that if they were in a culture that had a tradition around this type of thing, would be initiated into a shamanic lineage. Yeah, we're like, we got to give them antipsychotics so we can numb this thing that's happening because we don't understand it and it doesn't fit our model of become the type of citizen that after you leave our educational factory you buy a house that you can't pay off for 30 years where the name of it your mortgage is really close to uh morgue, <laughs> which is an interesting thing yeah i i, I haven't fact checked this but somebody told me someone who i respect but is prone to not fact checking <laughs> things and then sharing them as those are the best hard type facts of <laughs> most of us are <laughs> those type of people at least sometimes but he was saying that When mortgages were first invented um, or like created, the expectation was hopefully it would be so long that the person who bought it would die before they could pay it off and then the mortgage could be reclaimed and it's a really great business opportunity. Don't know if that's true. Seems kind of cynical, but it also makes a little bit of sense. But anyways, if you don't become the type of person that fits into what our old system sees as a productive member of, of society, which also part of that being a productive member is, you know, have your midlife crisis when you're about 40 because the the game that you thought would give you any type of satisfaction gives you almost no type of satisfaction. And then your psyche is rebelling against you, but we don't have an idea of what the psyche means. And so they'll buy a new car, they'll get that divorce, the lawyers get paid, and then a new, you know.
1: Pleasure seeking. Yeah.
0: If you don't fit that model, something's wrong with you and we have a whole host of interventions that, uh, maybe a percentage of the FDA's budget was paid for by the pharmaceutical companies that made the studies and analyze their own data to try to get those prescriptions passed so that you could give it to children. And then if you look at the long-term studies, it's probably not great for almost anyone who takes almost any of those for more than 10 years, but move that over here. Um, <laughs> and so I'm glad that, uh, that gift inside of you was able to make contact with yeah. actual medicine that's able to expand it.
1: And I owe that to my mom. You know, I think there's a the systematic stuff here that you're talking about where things are intentional, intentional and intentionally planned to set things up for people in a certain way.
0: The one pushback there is, um, I, I default to incompetence yeah, and that if the incentive, like, I don't think a lot of the people behind the choices for the plans are as smart as we would like to think that they are. And they're more selfish, but yeah.
1: But I think to bring it back around to parents and how they, you know, can help their children. There's a systematic stuff that you're talking about. But for me, I feel like where the choice point comes for parents that either do put their kids on the medication or not in my, my experience with my mom, you know, it's up to the parents capacity of how they deal with mysticism and spirituality and emotion. And so for my mom, you know, even though I was having intense dreams and they were affecting me, for her, she saw the beauty in that. And whatever road that was gonna take me on, she had enough there to, it didn't stir too much up in her. She trusted that process. And she's had intense dreams her whole life, even though she is on SSRIs and, you know, she has been on medication for a long time. She still has the dreams. So there was a little n- cool. nougat in there that I think she knew was... <laughs> she knew it. She she knew what was the right way, you know?
0: And I love the reframe. And I think that this is the compassionate side to all the research that I've done about the systematic stuff is yeah. what is the parent's capacity to deal with the tension that's created if their child is not in resonance with an out-of-resonance culture? Because it creates for the parent and like you know one of the things that Gabor Mate does a good job of bringing people's awareness to is the the lack of capacity that the parents have because they live inside of a culture and a situation that is fucking stressful yeah. that it's often like it feels like a survival choice to take whatever you can possibly take to give to your child to help them like fit in with the world because it's painful to watch your child not fit in with the world. So I love that reframe. And then the other thing that I wanted to connect to that's super interesting is Carl Jung has a bunch of ideas that, uh, like the spiritual culture has assimilated and like it's in our language and like synchronicity, the shadow, um, one of the ideas that he talks about when he tries to when when he tried to explain what synchronicity was that's uh, hard for me to to wrap my brain around is that the part of you that dreams what he calls the capital S self is outside of space and time and almost like has like a tendril down to the ego that's stuck in space and time almost like it's on a timeline. Mm-hmm. But the self can see the potential timelines in front and will sometimes try to seed through synchronicity like winks to try to pull yeah. the ego crucified in time and space <laughs> onto one of the paths that could help it become more of like what it's meant to be. And that often, not often, but sometimes you'll have a dream that has like a pre-cognitive wink at something that then ha- happens the next couple of days and something inside of you is like... Whoa.
1: Or like deja vu. Right. A remembering. Right. Yeah.
0: Like deja vu is like a, a remembering of the future and the present.
1: Yeah.
0: And um it seems like yourself was giving you a wink. And I, I also love the beauty of the dream and that to someone who has cultivated the nervous system of being a compulsive liar to don the commitment of i'm going to speak the truth especially if that nervous system has a lineage of being jewish yeah. that one of the most powerful symbols that the psyche could offer to represent the devastating fear because fundamentally, the reason we lie is because we're afraid. Of course. Like, period, full stop. Like, no lie has ever been told what, without fear. You know, fear. what could
1: be a better symbol for fear in a dream than being a little girl walking into a concentration camp?
0: And then, if you tell the truth, then you, yeah, yeah. And the really beautiful thing about dreams is uh, they give your nervous system the potential to have experiences. That you that would be almost impossible to have in waking life, but your nervous system gets to feel what it feels like for you to make a choice in integrity in a charged situation like that, yeah. and like it puts a download into your nervous system of like, if I'm willing to do that there, I can fucking go tell my coworker that the way they send emails is shitty. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like if I can do this dream, so I love both of those.
1: And the beauty on the other side of that, like feeling that fear, but in the dream, almost not having a choice and Mm -hmm. speaking the truth and then true freedom that was on the other side of that choice of telling the truth that came in a way that looking back at that dream now, you know, I think about my mom a lot who is amazing and also in a lot of ways chose not to awaken in this lifetime. And so it's like she escaped the concentration camp But her freedom was limited. Whereas I entered that doorway and it was the scariest thing that could have ever happened. And then, you know.
0: Yeah. That is such a profound point to settle into. And it's that any lie told for perceived freedom is actually more of a prison than any situation that telling the truth would put you into. Yeah. I can feel... Uh, I often make the jokes, the jokes with my friends, that if I'm ever the one who's pulled over, and like I cannot drive if we have drugs, yeah. <laughs> because if I get pulled over, you're gonna freak out. I'm probably gonna tell the truth yeah. and go to jail. Yeah. And so, to the homies that have a different <laughs> orienting system inside of them, you got to hold the drugs. If yeah. um, I have never driven, actually, I can't say. That. So uh, that's a potential hypothetical. Yeah. Um, And so now I want to bring it to you answer the call to do Aya for the first time. Please tell us that story.
1: Oh, it feels like yesterday and lifetimes ago, we went down and drank ayahuasca. It was an incredible experience. You know, it's so funny now working with Aya and knowing all that I know to think of who I was at that time, like truly the best way that I can describe it. It feels like my higher self put a, a cloud over me to almost numb me out and then dragged me all the way down there. I didn't know what ayahuasca was. I didn't know there was indigenous maestros or shaman. I didn't know anything about Amazonian shamanism. I didn't know there was going to be a ceremony. I didn't know it was going to be dark. I didn't know there would be singing. I knew nothing. Well,
0: I did not do a good job getting you prepared for yeah,
1: this. <laughs> I did not know anything. And I think that was all intentional. I, mean, I didn't know anything either. And back for the then. best, you know, it was like if I would have known what was actually going to happen while we were there, I don't think I would have gone. Now, when I look back, it almost feels like this glaze that was put over me to just thread and pull me down there. Um, you know, where I was at that time in my life was… I had practiced addictions and toxic relationships and so many things. And I then love I,
0: that wording. Did you just say I, I practiced
1: yeah.
0: toxic relationship and addictions? I love that. Yeah. Wow.
1: That's what I was practicing. That yeah. was one of my daily practices. Wow. You know, I
0: really fuck with that. <laughs> That's a great way to word it.
1: Yeah. And so that was my life. And then, you know, I had felt this call from my higher self for a long time to break out, but everything in my environment had been built around that lifestyle. And so when I found Go For Your Win and I found you for the first time, I had like a, a toe in the pond of transformation and the rest of my body was still in the old structure. And so something was guiding me, but I was still practicing a lot of those things. And so I did the diet, did the dieta. We went down and we drank ayahuasca. And, you know, the first two ceremonies, I didn't really connect at all, which I later know now, you know, the medicine was working on me, but I was so blocked from decades of a cocaine addiction, numbing my feelings and lots of marijuana usage and just lots of protection, like energetic protection around me. And so the first two ceremonies, you know, the medicine was working, but nothing really happened. And yeah, my third ceremony, I had, you know, just the biggest sadness up until last week, a ceremony that I just had. <laughs> my capacity is larger now. But at the time I had, you know, the, really the biggest letting go that I've ever felt. And the medicine came on and everybody in the Maloka turned into a different member of my family. And um, it was my abandonment wound playing out in a dreamlike scenario in ceremony. And the medicine came on strong. I turned into a baby in the crib. I thought that I was dying, felt that I was gonna die and One of the facilitators was my mom, Todd. Another facilitator became my dad. And um, somebody across the way in the Maloka drinking was my brother. And it showed me how as a child, when I was a baby in the crib, it wasn't that anybody was actively ignoring me. Everybody was just trying to take care of themselves and survive. And I played out this memory of being a baby in the crib and crying and crying and crying and crying for hours with nobody coming and nobody coming. And it was just this wrenching in my guts and so many tears and vomiting and just this feeling of helplessness um, until I wept so hard that I couldn't even breathe. And there was just this, I remember saying to myself in the ceremony, why is everybody so busy? Like, what about me? Mm. And so that was really the first ceremony, the gateway. Like, I can still viscerally feel what that felt like to have that level of understanding. And then the vision took me from the baby to the two-year-old, to the four-year-old, to the six-year-old, to the eight-year-old, through this journey of my childhood of feeling that I wasn't important and that's why people weren't coming. And then how that caused me to act out as a child, develop incredibly intelligent attention-seeking strategies and set me on this path of needing to be different, needing to be interesting, needing to be a rebel to stand out, to get attention, to get what I needed. And that was really the trajectory of my life, was never allowing myself to be in comfort or to be normal and seeking out peaks and valleys and rebellious behavior and just very high stimulatory things um, to get the attention that I thought that I needed. And it, it took me through childhood. It took me through the anger of my teenage years. It took me into my 20s and seeking men that would later abuse me and leave me in the crib per se, you know, just this repetition, this cycle I had been on. Um, And it ended towards the end of that ceremony was so much anger towards my mother, like this burning hot rage that I was in this ceremony puking in the jungle with a bunch of strangers going through this pain. And I thought she was at home watching TV and how unfair that was. Why did this happen to me? Why did you do this to me? And I felt that rage, which eventually carried me into the most empathy and gratitude and forgiveness I've ever felt for her. In that moment, I knew I would work with ayahuasca. And I knew that this would be my path. And the medicine showed me in a thousand memories, like flipping through a photograph book, of how everything I had gone through growing up with a mom with mental illness who was just dealing with her own shit was my training to work with people who needed help to attune my nervous system to help others and eventually do what I'm doing now. And so every painful memory of my childhood that I had been holding on to, I grieved through all seven stages to the final stage of gratitude and saw it all as my training. And that's how I ended that ceremony. It was a good one.
0: (laughs) There's quite a few things that come up that I'd love to highlight. And um, one is there's a gnosis that happens at the end of stage seven of those stages of grief. And the gnosis is the exceptional aspects of who I am that make my life the most beautiful came and exists because of my deepest traumas. And like for me, one of mine was my mom's radiance would uh, at times without me knowing why just be gone from the world for days. Yeah. And I very quickly had to learn how to um, sense her emotional disposition without her having to express it linguistically. And that was a coping pattern to survive. And now it's literally like the aperture through which I help people with everything that I do. Yeah. And I wouldn't have this sensitivity if I didn't have that type of on and off childhood. But the interesting thing about this gnosis that ends after you've grieved fully, you know, like the anger and the pain of having to be put through as a child, through whatever it is that was your unique pain to be yeah. put through. Before you've done that, when someone else uh, even insinuates that you should feel grateful is...
1: Salt in the wound.
0: I have seen it. Like, for people who are not ready to don the, like, weight of that cape, Mm -hmm. the fucking anger and rage that they... Explode with if you even begin to mention that type of story. And it's just it's this interesting thing where there's this gnosis that you have. And that if it's put onto anyone by force, mm. it like sets them on fire in a way that's not like a purifying spiritual metaphor <laughs> for transformation. Yeah. Um yeah. but I too have felt Like, wow, at the bottom and past my grief and my anger, there is like a, I am very grateful that my nervous system was able to alchemize that in the way that it did.
1: And once you touch that, it's hard to remember it being a different way. But Mm -hmm. when you're in that and that wound is alive and you're operating from that place of trauma, and for me, it's scarcity, it's lack, it's why me, it's victimhood. We have to fully feel that and go through that. You know, And so whenever we get to that stage of gratitude, we get there. But I think it's more the propensity to not feel the pain that 100%. makes somebody easily triggered yep. by that. If you're really allowing yourself to feel into that grief and that pain of whatever your thing is, I think you're less li- likely to be set on fire by that than somebody who's keeping it in a box, 100%. you know?
0: And that actually beautifully segues to the second thread I wanted to highlight. And it's more and more, um, being in the spaces and the containers that I'm in and, um, you know, being in the role of quote unquote coach, even though I want to roll my eyes when I think about (laughs) like that word, but it is what it is. Um, one of the biggest, I think, uh, meaningfully, non-helpful misunderstandings in the spiritual community is this idea of like positive vibes only Yeah, of course. and like it's gotten to the point where even most people in the spiritual community will roll their eyes at it but like the interesting thing and I think something that's like if we want to be stewards to this way of thinking one of the things to really connect to is there's a whole army of like 14 year olds who are just starting to get access to these type of ways of thinking through, you know, for better, for worse, things like TikTok and shit like that, but they're making contact with it. And I think one of the most, like the first misunderstanding, I think for people who are starting to enter into this song is positive vibes only. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I see over and over and over again in like felt direct experiential work with people is to the degree that you can either explicitly invite them into or gray magically trick them into feeling their darker emotions it opens them up to feel their more beautiful emotions absolutely and it's it's a really interesting thing but a you know I've been honing my journaling coaching thing since you know the first time I taught it to y'all like 4 years ago it's gotten a little bit better and one of the things that i have found that is super powerful and that when i don't do it the ev- like the evidence of its lacking is super powerful is before asking someone to envision a thing that they actually want to like manifest into the world invite them to look at their hell like each of us has inside of us the ability if we're brave to track what our unique hell is that's waiting for us a year from now. Yeah. If for the next year we continue our practices, <laughs> I'd love the way that you worded that of our addiction, of our lying, of our coping patterns of avoiding, like what is waiting for you in the future? If you choose to continue to play yeah. this game this way and almost like, you know, the magic of the Christmas Carol, you know, as it's like, let your higher self take you on the ghost of Christmas past and fucking show you, like, yeah. w- like what is truly waiting for you.
1: Usually, we're already living it.
0: It can get worse if yeah. you got a good imagination, yeah. but yeah, true. Um, and then when you invite people to imagine like what they want to create, they're so much more open. And what's interesting is that when people don't do that first part, what I have found in like my direct experiential containers is a lot of people like are like congested when you ask them like, what's your dream life? Yeah. Because there's some part of them that like something inside of them knows that like the thing that they're even trying to imagine is just like, it's out of alignment with what they actually.
1: And there's a disconnect, right? For me, the darker emotions, I don't even really like, I love the darkness, you know, I work in the darkness. So the darkness is mysticism and it's beautiful, but the quote unquote darker emotions, for me, the fear and the pain and the suffering, it's like digging a hole and the amount that you're able to allow yourself to feel those emotions creates a bigger depth. And that depth is however much you can feel all the emotions, the full spectrum. And so your ability to sit with all of the emotions, you know, it's not about changing the content. This is what I wish I could have told myself so long ago. It's not about, you know, the spiritual evolution or healing. It's not about no longer having fear or no longer having pain or no longer having dark emotions. It's not about changing the content. It's about changing the way that you hold it. Mm. is about removing any strategies we have when we start approaching fear or pain that we disconnect or cut off or move away from. It's about removing that so that you come to the door of your house and open it with the same willingness, no matter what is on the other side of that door. Mm. And so for me, the darker emotions are what dig and dig and dig and dig the depth of what you're able to feel. And that goes for the higher emotions. I mean, the, we you know, we know this. That the more you allow yourself to go into the darkness, the more light that you can feel.
0: 100%. There's a couple of interesting things that I feel my brain doing after hearing you share. Um, I'm going to try to see if I can pull them. Uh, one is it, it feels so something that I've been doing uh, for the last couple of weeks, is I've been re or I've been listening to an audio book called "The Rise and the Fall of the Third Reich," mm. and it's a sixty-hour audiobook, <laughs> And I'm like fifteen hours in, and it's like some part of me wants to look at uh, aspects of the human experience that I know I am uh, like disrespectfully naive to, yeah. and that like. This is kind of a tangent, but like, I'd be willing to say that probably at least 80% of people in Western culture that accuse a modern person of being a white supremacist or a fucking Nazi or whatever, the extent of what they know is Hitler was a dictator. Yeah. He created concentration camps and he killed millions of Jews, Yeah, but nothing else about, and just like looking at how this dude wrote a book that said exactly what he would do and that he was able to rise to power in Germany and the things that he did even before the war started, like the depth of the quote unquote dark actions that humans are capable of doing. And it's like, when I use the word dark emotions, I'm not talking about anger. And I'm not talking about fear and I'm not talking about grief. I'm talking about the resentment that might build up for yourself because you know that you're choosing to be cowardly for years where you end up doing something to someone else or to yourself that wounds like the shape of your soul, you know, like looking at that all of us have the potential to go there. Yeah. And that if we look at that clearly, it really allows us to look more clearly at like the more beautiful world that we could create. And the other sacred cow in the spiritual community that I think is important to bring awareness to, I can't know that this is the case, but it's deeply my intuition. And it's that you quote unquote can fuck it up and that you can make choices. I guess a better way to say it is uh, you are not destined to get the best outcome. Yeah. That the choices that you make matter and condense the possibility of the future timelines in front of you into the present moment. Mm-hmm. And that we all have the free will choice to make a hundred choices in a row that swerve us towards like a life that maximizes our suffering and the suffering of everyone who knows us. Mm-hmm. And we can also make a hundred choices in a row that lead us to like our presence makes babies giggle and old people remember like the vibrancy of life like just our being being there yeah. is healing and that um there is no way to get to that highest 100 step towards that beautiful place if you have not celebrated like fully the fucking book bag or a backpack, book bag, backpack. <laughs> I think it was Graham that makes fun of me for saying book bag or backpack. It's book bag.
1: It's definitely book bag. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so, so
0: whatever. Anyways, uh, like everyone listening has a bag full of trauma and grief. Yeah. And the only way to uh, like fully blossom into whatever you are is to celebrate like to fucking celebrate, to get to the point where you can celebrate your trauma and your grief. And just a quick side note for people, if you haven't, check out the uh, the Audible book, The Smell of Rain on Dust, and make sure to get the Audible version because it's read by the author, and it sounds like you're listening to an elder around a fire, Mm -hmm. giving you grief practices.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. there's a lot of threads there you know yeah i'm i'm we have a grief retreat coming up which i'm really excited yeah. about the alchemy of grief and you know i think there's a lot of ways that we could take that but telling somebody like we talked about who is not at that stage where they're able to see the gratitude on the other side and the lesson in it you know to some people listening to this and to some people in that stage where it just feels like crippling pain where it feels like victimhood where it feels like why me i think it's not actually helpful and so for me the antidote to so much of this is just practices in learning how to feel and it's not about feeling better it's just about better feeling get off no matter what
0: someone hosts workshops and goes over this <laughs> because that was honed as fuck
1: you know we we think through this spiritual movement like you you talk about this toxic positivity and spiritual bypassing or this notion that well it's all for the best it's all you know thinking that you can act in any way
0: is it weird that it feels toxic to me to call it toxic positivity like it, like this is kind of a side note but it's alive for me but one of the things i'm tracking right now is people using words or phrases In ways that feels like they're trying to put out the energy of exile Mm. that like they're trying to exile because they self exile. For sure. And that like one of like anyone on any team on any quote unquote tribe, if we're, if we're putting out exile energy, we are contributing to the problem. And like, I see the, people in the space that use the positive vibes only, I see them as my brothers and my sisters. And like as the older brother or older sister, it's like, please come look at this the way that I see
1: this. I see the pain. I mean, for me, looking at somebody that that feels that way, that is denying multiple facets of the human experience Mm -hmm. and feels they only have the capacity to look at one flavor of being
0: Yeah, it's like being in your house and you're trying to look for your, like, shoes to leave or your keys, (laughs) but you only look where the light's on and the light's only on in one room. Yeah. And, like, this is the positivity room. And it's like, motherfucker, the basement is where your keys are.
1: Yeah. Or who knows? Who even knows what other rooms there are? It's like not even allowing yourself into the mystery of what other rooms there might be. But for me, yeah, okay. In this case, it's positivity, but you can use any emotion and reconstruct that as avoidance and disconnection from the other emotions. And mm-hmm. so, you know, and I think there's a lot of gifts that social media can give us spreading knowledge and wisdom about plants, about psychedelics, that's, about that's
0: how you and I and everyone and go for your one back. Yeah,
1: about community, you know, there are so many positive elements that it can bring to help people heal, to show them that there is another path, there is another way. And I think one of the saddest parts about it is also the way that the spiritual journey and plant medicine and healing and spiritual evolution gets portrayed via social media, which is a positive experience, surrounded by people you love in beautiful clothing, in beautiful places. It can be
0: like that though.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think the they're
0: overrepresentation. The
1: overrepresentation of that, type. of that. And often, by the time somebody gets to a part, this is a generalization, but by the time somebody gets to a part on their journey where they're taking photos and talking about their healing experiences, they've gone through a lot of steps before then. And so, you know, what I want people at home to unless know unless they're really bold and have no idea <laughs> what that's going to look like in yeah. hindsight after a couple of months. Just journeys. by chance. But. You know, spiritual awakening also looks like addictions and cutting and laying on the bathroom floor with agonizing pain in your body and chasing after somebody down the street and feeling the depths of aloneness and suffering in ways that feel almost impossible to articulate. And, you know, there's so many levels to this. And what I don't think is helpful for people is feeling that if they want to start this journey of waking up and addressing those traumas and those things in their backpack, like you said, that it has to look a certain way and they should dress a certain way and they should be a certain way and they should feel positive a certain way because it's just a further representation of the disconnect from our authentic expression that got us all here to begin with.
0: Yeah, there's a quote by Buckminster Fuller, and it's one of my favorite motherfucking quotes. And it's, uh, the best way to revolutionize a system is not to critique the system, but to create a new system yeah. that replaces the old system. Yeah. And so one of the things that I hear is, are you having a call from your daemon to represent the, dar- the more beautiful dirt parts of the spiritual experience to help yeah. people see what it is? And its totality. Cool. Yeah. Don't I look forward to seeing those
1: things. <laughs> and I think I used to do that. You know. You know. I used to write a lot and share a lot about my abandonment wound and the things that I was going through. And I shared a lot about my addictions and my you're traumas. A great Thank you. Um. And the truth is, I became I became so comfortable in the darkness that I moved away from anything positive. I wanted to be the rebel. I wanted I used in the same way that you're talking about toxic positivity. I used my identity as the rebel to and i used sadness and pain to keep me in the darkness and keep me in that flavor of life that's incredible self-awareness because anything positive was normal and basic and not meaningful and you know that was (laughs) you guys
0: can't see it but if we had a video she has a fucking scowl of disgust on her face when she's talking about positive so this is the
1: way that we can use our emotions you know like we can use them as tools to manipulate and avoid ourselves. And so for a long time I you know I wanted to stay in the darkness. I wanted to be in the darkness and ultimately my that first ayahuasca trip bringing it back to that, you know, I had been carrying this depression for a long time and I went with this intention of, I don't want to be depressed anymore. Whatever it is, the toxic relationships, the addictions, the fear, the scarcity, the abandonment wound, I just want to be happy. I want to be able to feel life fully. And so ayahuasca showed me the traumas that I had and the parts of myself that were keeping me in that depression. And she started clearing those energies out. And I got back home after that trip to my apartment And I remember this feeling of my best friend isn't here with me. And that was my depression. Wow. And I became completely destabilized. And so Hmm. it was like the tower of my life that had been built on this, I am not worthy. Ayahuasca pulled the pin out at the bottom and everything came crashing down. And at the time I didn't have the knowledge and I didn't, wasn't, you know, didn't have the support then to really understand the energetics of what ayahuasca is doing, what these maestros are doing, which is clearing these energies and moving these energies. And I didn't, I didn't really understand any of that. And so my identity of self and the way I had set up my life and the way that I related in the world, like that pin got pulled out and I didn't know how to be. And so my protectors came online three times stronger than they were before. Manipulation, lying, reaching for drugs, negativity, scarcity, everything came boiling to the surface. And then I got to tell myself the story. Once again, I'm abandoned. Not even ayahuasca could fix me because everything is here that much stronger. You know, and I'm just, you know, even in the plant medicine space, was replaying out my trauma of I'm broken. And so it took all those things really coming to the surface before they began to lift and they began to lift. And the medicine kept working for months after that trip. But it was a tough couple of months. And I didn't really understand. I didn't understand why these parts and why these protections were coming out even stronger. And I feel that's something people don't talk about enough is, you know, as you, when you do psychedelics, when you work with plant medicine, it's not just like you change and become the thing that you want to be. There's all of these ripples and layers and root systems about around the ways that you are. And so it takes time for things to manifest and for things to heal. And we might not even consciously understand all the different parts of our lives that this weaves into. And so just asking for one thing to go away, it's not that simple.
0: Well, I happen to have someone on the podcast today who has some stories that she could potentially (laughs) share to start to address that issue that you just pointed out that there's not enough of these type of stories. Yeah. So if you want to, I know how good of a storyteller you are. Mm -hmm. If you want to go into, because right now we're at the surface where it's like, I came back and it was hard and it was hard for months.
1: Yeah.
0: A motherfucking storyteller has like the high resolution, I'm going to be brave. I'm going to fucking. So this is an opportunity for you to buck Minster Fuller, this idea of that there's not enough of this other side of the experience. And so the floor is yours, Francesca. What is a story from this period that you feel highlights what is missing in the current cultural conversation around what happens when you start this path?
1: You know, I think... At the end of the day, to simplify things, before we drank ayahuasca, I had lived a life where I always felt uncomfortable within myself. And so really what I wanted from the medicine, you know, to heal me, I wanted to feel comfortable. I wanted to feel at home. We went to the jungle and we drank medicine and all of this stuff happened. And I went back home and I felt even more uncomfortable than I did before. And so from that place of discomfort and not knowing myself, many things happened. I reached for all of the numbing and dissociating things that happened. You know, I think it was just a week or so after I flew home to Portland, I flew to Denver where my partner, who I had been in a toxic relationship with for three years, lived. And I showed up at his door begging to come inside. I was Messaging my coke dealer, wanting to get drugs. I was trying to manipulate my partner, my ex partner at the time, to sleep with me so that I could lie to him that I got pregnant so that he would stay. Like all of these things that I was doing, these parts that were coming out that were so scared of being alone in the discomfort of being Mm -hmm. with myself were coming out stronger than they ever had. And
0: Real quickly, the metaphor that comes to mind is uh, like having, like, clearing your gut of a candida overgrowth. What happens is that as soon as it starts to work and they feel danger, they blow up. They fucking use all of their skills because they're trying to survive. Yeah. And this feels like the uh, psychological metaphor of candida overgrowth.
1: Absolutely. Like an infection, you know, everything. Everything came online so much stronger. My desire to manipulate, my desire to numb, my desire to dissociate. And the
0: other interesting thing that feels useful to articulate is before you remove like the fundamental disassociation that we have with ourselves, we feel uncomfortable, but it's like it's a numbed uncomfortable. mm mm-hmm something as potent as ayahuasca it removes the disassociation yeah and then the discomfort of having a life out of accord with our values and our integrity and genuinely having love and friendship it
1: feels intolerable
0: it it goes from being like two on the volume scale that's kind of like muffled mm-hmm. to like high resolution yeah. best possible fucking headphones like
1: not to Eight. mention you're on the diet, so you're not even using caffeine, sex, oh, I'm sorry. What you uh, masturbation. You failed. know, you're highly sensitive to everything. And so this hope that I would go and do this really hard thing and heal and then come home and feel better. And I came home and I felt more uncomfortable, more alone. And all of these techniques and coping patterns came out so much stronger. Um, and there was a real recklessness. Like there was a desire to destroy my life and destroy anyone in it. And like this feasting on chaos that I think I had just set my nervous system up for.
0: Um, By the way, for everyone who doesn't know, she ran a industrial level, high quality kitchen. I think she... She was the boss of the kitchen at like 20. So there is some... It's (laughs) it's ridiculous every time I hear this story because it makes no sense. But as an 18-year-old, the queen of an industrial professional kitchen, a part of her absolutely, absolutely thrives on chaos.
1: Yeah, chaos and stimulation, right? So when when that nervous system was getting established and growing when I was a child in a house of chaos, it's like the stimulation bar gets set really high. And so ultimately- That's the baseline. That's that's the the baseline of what feels meaningful in life. And so a nice conversation with a nice guy, not meaningful. (laughs) You know? A nice evening at home with friends, it's not really doing it for me. I saw and chased and created chaos and recklessness to feel alive. And ultimately- I had this came through on San Pedro a couple of weeks ago, like still after, you know, years of being clean, like the scraping of cocaine energy out of my face and out of my body. San Pedro was like, look at the gift this drug gave you. A way to disconnect, but still feel alive. Wow. The perfect drug. For someone searching for heavy that.
0: air quotes. I'm perfect. But yeah. I totally hear you. But yeah, like
1: yeah. at the time it was the antidote, you know, how can I disconnect from all my pain, but still feel alive. Yeah.
0: And I think that this actually brings up a really good point about the, um, little the diatribe I had at the beginning of the podcast. And it's that any intervention to the degree that you have informed consent of its consequences, mm-hmm if it helps you navigate the current edge of your capacity to not destroy your life in a way that's unredeemable, yeah. I think we should all have access to all of those things. For sure. But again, the informed consent is a big part of some of the more standard things that's withheld. Yeah. But like we are all doing our best. Like, From a phenomenological standpoint, it's like we wake up inside of a car that mom and dad hopefully are steering, but we're in a car. We didn't, it doesn't feel like we got to choose (laughs) not what type of car, not where we're going. And then at some point, like, like, you know, dad jumps out the window and gets his own car and mom like gets on a trailer in the back and you got to (laughs) like climb up in the front and start driving. And you're like. 19, yeah. have to make a choice where it's like, you know what? I'm going to go into a bunch of debt so I can go down this new toll road that I might pay for the rest of my... It was like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. And if like we feel like we're going in the wrong direction, we want to take some fucking things to so, like slow yeah, down the car. playing
1: on the radio. <laughs> I would jump out of the car if that
0: were the case. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so what was the major alchemizing choice point in that first stage that eventually brought you to the point now where I'm looking at an integration journal that you fucking made that is absolutely motherfucking what's that emoji that's on the iPhone now it's where like
1: the Italian hand?
0: Yeah. Am I allowed to say it's an Italian <laughs> hand or are we at a space in the Zeitgeist where it's inappropriate? But you can say, but yeah, it's it's a, Yeah. how would you describe this hand sign in words? And it's I, like,
1: like when something tastes really good. All right.
0: So imagine someone pinching some herbs and they kiss their hand and then they let the herbs go in the wind. <laughs> That's the hand sign. Anyways.
1: Yeah. I mean, okay. Ultimately, it was time for things to change for me. And just like I said, my journey of finding ayahuasca for the first time, it was like I was still in all these practicing all these patterns, but my higher self was guiding me. And when I went home after ayahuasca, all of the techniques that I had used before to help me survive and help me get attention and help me numb, yet feel alive and help me do all these things, they no longer worked because I was different. My energy was different. And so they came to full fruition. I tried and I tried like the candida tried to grow and grow and grow and become stronger. But ultimately it was their time to die. And so a few months after things started to lift and things started to feel different, and I started practicing more love for myself and looking at all of these things in a different light. Like I had this integration call with this guy after ayahuasca and I was telling him how all of these things were coming out so much stronger and I just wanted them to go away. I wanted these parts of myself to go away. And he just very simply said, what was the lesson that you got in that ceremony of where all this stuff was birthed from? And I was like, oh, abandonment. And he's like, so now you're just trying to abandon parts of yourself and you think these parts are going to just go away. It was this moment of like... Oh, shit. You know? And as long as I looked at parts of myself with that same masculine energy of get it out, rip it out, fix it. I hey, don't want it. Is it fair to
0: say that that's masculine?
1: Well, like this. Wow. This toxic- unhealthy masculine energy of like, fix I'm it. Totally it's joking. broken. Yeah. You know? the longer and the more that I looked at myself as broken and something that I needed to fix, I was just perpetuating the energy that I felt as a child that I wasn't worthy and I wasn't enough the way that I was. And so this big shift really came when I started practicing love for those parts and I started letting them be okay existing. And I started appreciating the addiction, appreciating the abusive relationships appreciating my intellect and wit that had been working so hard to manipulate and create these situations. And even now there's a part of me saying that's like, ooh, I don't wanna honor that part because there's a fear that if I give it love, it's gonna take the reins, but that's an illusion. Yeah, and what's interesting is it's
0: so much more likely the opposite to be the case, that it, if you yeah. exile it, it's it'll, it'll sneak up on you. Like the really interesting thing that I feel with my inner parts is that the ones that have been acknowledged become tools that can be picked up if it's the just right thing to pick it up. Absolutely. If they're exiled, those are the ones that have the chance to like sneak up behind and grab the throne and come out through me in ways that I can't yeah. see.
1: It's like it's like taking a dog and locking it in the basement and not giving it, giving it any food and then letting it out two weeks later and then wondering why it's going around biting everybody and it's completely ravenous. I mean, it's trying to survive. And so there there came a shift and I really don't even know what the moment was, but there came a shift at some point to just start looking at these things differently. And that really was my integration, was finding the strength within myself. Even though it didn't really feel authentic at the time, I still had a lot of self-hate just to be willing to give those parts some love. And it was like with each bite of nourishment I gave them, they calmed and they calmed and they calmed and they calmed. Um, And the more I realized there was nothing to fix, there was just space to be held for all of these parts. It was just like huge clearing was happening and huge amounts of energy became available for creativity. and. So many other things. And so it was a long, cold, dark road of integration. I didn't know it was going to be like that. You know, I thought we were going to go and we were going to drink and then we were going to vomit and it was going to be really hard. And then we were going to go home and feel amazing. And that's not how it was. And so.
0: I feel bad because that's what my experience
1: was like. Yeah. (laughs) Except I didn't vomit. And you didn't didn't even (laughs) vomit, you know. Sorry. And this is interesting because this came through on San Pedro recently. I'm working with an incredible man named Bernard who we live with in the valley. He's been serving San Pedro for, you know, 15 years. And Niels, my partner now is, he's, he's all love and light. I mean, he's got his stuff, but for the most part, he is love and he is light. And when we have a ceremony, I'm like on the floor in pain and fear, writhing and vomiting. And Niels is just like sitting, sitting in full Lotus with light beams shooting out the crown of his head. And I'm like, what the fuck, you know, this is bullshit. Even when we meditate, you know, I got this monkey mind and it's going and it's going and it's going. And and Niels is just like raw dog in a meditation. No headphones. She
0: said raw dog in a meditation.
1: No headphones, no sound bowls, no chimes. He's like, I'm just going to go meditate. And he literally just goes and sits in the grass for 90 minutes and doesn't move.
0: 90? Good Lord.
1: I need like multiple stimuli, you know, like gongs and shit to keep my focus. And so this has been a thing in our relationship of me like, what? You know, we just had the San Pedro ceremony a couple of weeks ago and I was going through it. Vomiting, pain, migraine, just a lot of suffering. And he was having the most beautiful, energetic alignment of his life, he says to this day. And Bernard comes over to me, sees me just rolling around in the grass, miserable. And he just taught me this acceptance of like, you know, Niels's work is he came into this world, love and light. And so his work is learning how to hold that amount of light in an effective way mm. because it's a real world. Mm. And he's been over trusting and, you know, he's gotten his heart broken and lost a lot because he's just love and light. And he thinks that's the world that he's in. And so Such his work… Point. His work is learning how to hold that light in an effective way. And so, in ceremony, he's in that love and light, but in life, he's getting knocked around. Whereas for myself, I've got different work to do. I'm here to do different work. And so, Bernard was teaching me like,
0: You're here to vomit in ceremony and
1: crush it in <laughs> yeah. the 3D. Yeah. Go to shows. But, you know, like all of this stuff that I'm transmuting and healing in ceremony, the depths of this fear and these addictions and distrust and abandonment that's coming through. Once I learn to do that for myself, then it will be time to do that for my family. And then once I'm done doing that for my family, I'll be here to do that for other souls and other beings in the world. And so you be- it becomes like a language that you can speak. I sad.: Yeah. And so pretty much what he was teaching me was it's never over. It just deepens and you might get a little bit more comfortable in the discomfort, but your capacity is increasing and that's what's happening to me now. There was a period of time where my ceremonies were just hard and painful and full of fear and then I finally broke through that last year and my capacity and my energetic body just felt like it expanded and now the shit that's coming through is like twice as hard but there's more trust and there's more safety. And so it's never really over.
0: What would you share as the catalyzing story that went from, because there's, I, I did ayahuasca the one time. It was really hard. Yeah. Now I'm training with some of the best in the world at one of the dopest places in the world, getting downloads. I have, I have a partner that does it with me and we've done it, you know, so many times that it's egregious to even talk about because it just makes everyone who compares themselves spiritually to other people, the way egoic people compare themselves with like their bench press. It's just like, she's stronger (laughs) than me, bro. Yeah. What was the, cause there was a a light at the end of that first long, dark road that then birthed this dream of like, maybe I could do the thing that I went through for other people. So could you share that transformation?
1: Well, it was like, it was two timelines. It was happening simultaneously because after I went home from Sultara the first time and integrated and went through that journey and kind of came out the other side, but still had a lot more work to do. I mean, I applied for a job at Sultara like the week after I left, even though I had this hard experience and integration had gotten even harder. It was like my parts... And coping mechanisms were like living a timeline and my higher self was living a timeline right next to it. And they were like doing this.
0: This has got to be so relatable for most people who are anywhere on this path where they're like, I'm schizophrenic.
1: Yeah. Apparently, like if anyone knew <laughs>
0: what was happening inside of me, like I got yeah. this whole set of life standards and practices and then I got fucking this shit. Yeah. Yeah. And this shit was almost all of me when I was 20. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so it was happening simultaneously, but it really felt like some part of myself knew that I wasn't going to be able to reach the change and the growth that I wanted alone at my apartment in Portland. That the temptation and the patterns and the practices just for me were too practiced. And I needed to like pick myself. I love that
0: language. Too practiced.
1: Yeah. I picked, needed to pick myself up and drop myself into spiritual rehab. And so I went to live and work at Sultara, which ended up being the hardest and best thing that could have ever happened to me because now I'm in a space where my part's really can't use what they normally use to cope or to mm-hmm. dissociate and I'm surrounded by medicine people who've got heaps of experience and I'm new to they this can work see through the bullshit they can see through the bullshit and also have their own
0: there's nothing like having a couple of people around you that uh can like see parts and call right. that shit out because yeah. it's just like damn I either have to avoid them or yeah. I have to
1: do my <laughs> hide shit. in my hut in my room yeah. and so For me, it was like a spiritual rehab. I was learning to work there and hold space for other people while continuing to do ceremonies and learn about myself and learn more about the medicine and pretty much got to say goodbye to my whole life. And so in that was a lot of sacrifice, but I was also removing the choice. It's like, Going to the grocery store and only buying healthy food, you just have to make that choice once. It's the choice
0: to remove bad choices. Yeah.
1: Like all week long, you can eat anything from your fridge versus going to the grocery store and buying a bunch of junk. And then all week long, 20 times a day, you got to debate whether or not to eat the- Francesca, I have a confession. The cookies.
0: If you knew-
1: What was in there?
0: No. How Uh, much I don't cook and how much I order out- I don't uh, know. I don't think you understand. But anyways, let's get back on. Okay. Well, so. you
1: used to cook zero. So unless it's less than zero, it's the same as it was before.
0: We're going to continue on with this, with the beautiful thread of this podcast that's not talking about the fact that I don't cook.
1: Which we can get into the meaning of cooking for yourself and what that is later too. But anyways. Uh, no, I would like so, to that. So, yeah. <laughs>
0: I don't want to look at this part. Okay.
1: Yeah. So anyways, I went, you know, I went and I worked there and I deepened into the medicine and I learned and I integrated and I think it just became so clear as I started to heal myself thinking of how sick and broken and how, how much I never thought I would be able to have and experience joy and beauty and depth and meaning and then living this life It never really once felt again like there was anything else I could go on to do in the world. Like it is the most beautiful work my heart knows is possible. And being a part of that amount of magic all the time and being able with guests to go into the depth of the pain because I had been there before and the darkness and the self-hatred and the addictions. And no, you don't understand. I've really done some bad things. I'm like, oh, I understand (laughs) I understand being able to look somebody in the eye and they can feel that you know because you've done that too, that you've been there too, but now you're holding yourself in a space of love lights a spark in them that they now know it's possible. And so it's not about being the healer and doing the healing. It's just about being the space for them to heal themselves
0: Right, it's like uh, cultivating the capacity to witness a larger spectrum of the human experience yeah. is what a quote-unquote space holder who yeah. is adequate is capable of doing. It's and like, I think
1: that people actually don't know that it's possible when they've done things in their life that they have so much regret about and they feel that they're a terrible person.
0: They have to feel it.
1: They don't actually really know that it's possible to ever be in a, be a different way, but They can feel that in you that you've been there and now you're you're here. here. And all of a sudden, this thing sparks in them, and they're like, Oh, it's possible. It's a spark of hope. Yeah. Yeah.
0: There's also a really interesting thread. Those people that we talked about at the beginning, that you can't give the story of the gratitude at the end of stage seven. (laughs) There's also this thing that, like, I've had a couple of people outright say, the sentence almost verbatim but it was basically like don't give me hope again that, that there's a part of a certain uh spectrum of people who've gone through enough pain and who have failed at sincere attempts yeah that have gone to a point where their response to a story of hope is vicious fury yeah
1: yeah scared of feeling anything
0: Yeah. That the hope is terrifying.
1: The hope is terrifying. And that's where I was for a period of time. I didn't want to be in the light. I didn't want to be anywhere else, but that darkness because I learned to be comfortable there. And so reconnecting to hope and reconnecting to aliveness means connecting to everything inside of you. And sometimes that can feel too daunting. And, hope is not some static place that we land. LOL, right. It's like, if you imagine a circle, we teach this in our retreats, in a workshop, the concept of samsara. Like, if you imagine a circle with hope at the top and fear at the bottom, when you're moving towards hope, you know, you hope to get the job or you hope to get the relationship or you hope to heal, even if you get the thing that you wanted, you don't land in hope you start moving towards fear. You start fear of losing it or fear of what might go wrong. And so then you move down to fear and the fear is not static either. And so we're always in this cycle. And so again, for me, it's not about changing the content. It's not about changing the weather pattern that's outside to only invite sun and no rain or only want to be you know, in certain feelings, this dichotomous separation of feelings. It's about the capacity to hold the content in a different way. I move towards hope with the same willingness and openness as I move towards fear. And when you can touch upon that, that is true freedom to me. Because you do not require or need anything in your environment to be a certain way. Whatever comes, you are so fiercely connected Um... to yourself.
0: I'm having a fucking goosebump-inducing download that your share just triggered, and I'd love to get your Mm -hmm. feedback on this. Um, My fundamental, like, phenomenological, which is just a fancy way of saying, like, felt experience trauma as a child was the first time that I started to... Uh, contemplate what eternity was, mm. and um, when I go really deep with any type of uh, consciousness transforming technology, whether it be breath work or motherfucking ketamine and cannabis and more breath work, um, uh, I get to a felt experience that I lazily call "quote unquote" hell. Mm. What I'm realizing is that 99% of my felt experience has been in the illusion of time and space straight line. Hmm. You know, and like even all my work on journaling and shit, like it has the implied structure. Like you have a past, you have a future, you have a present. You're You're in the Kronos, you know, is the god of time. Like you are in the quote-unquote masculine reality tunnel of existence, which is the line. This thing that I call hell is when it feels like my felt experience, and I cannot convey the intensity of the gnosis of this space. I remember I used
1: to keep you up at night as mm-hmm. a child, yeah.
0: But I get to this space where it's like, it feels like the fundamental truth of existence is." A singular, undulating spiral of everything, always, all at once. And it's the most like, wounding experience to my personality, which is embedded in an ego that's crucified on time and space that lives in the Kronos line of existence. We are in the time... Chronos experience yeah. now, or at least I am. Maybe you're off in the fucking it's spiral hard, yeah. of eternity, but <laughs> I I keep finding myself in this space where years ago it felt like utter terror in a way where I just wanted it to be over. Yeah, and I've slowly gotten to a place where it's like, because when I'm in this space my witness self is it's like the whole Eric life is an illusion. Everyone I've ever loved is an illusion because all of that separation is an illusion yeah. because everything is of the one spiral forever, always everywhere. This is actually the true state. And there's a felt sense of there is no going back to that illusion. It's just, I'm it's back in source and it's just witnessing itself in this ever undulating thing. And when I talk about it in hindsight, I can feel like, fuck, there's no way to articulate the magnitude of the felt sense when you're in it. Cause there's no memory. Yeah. But now I've gotten to a point where the last two or three times I've been brought there is it's just like, it's, it's this constant tension between the epiphanous feeling of feeling like I'm realizing the truth. And then this like utter hopeless depression. And it's not even a constriction. It's more like the life force is just oozing out of me because there's just no, like there's no reason for any personality to ever exist because of this truth. I've gotten to the point where I can just like, Basically, I just repeat a mantra to myself and accept what feels like the most impossible thing to accept. One of the things I've started to notice is that the felt experience is it really feels like my consciousness, it's like I can feel what part of the spiral I'm on Mm. in that moment. And that I can feel like the directionality. Like, I literally had a moment a couple of months ago where it felt like I was in, like, the darkest part. And I knew that it would eventually, like, give way to, like, oh, I'm going to be reborn as a baby, and I'm going to be able to feel what it feels like to be a baby, and I'm going to know love. But, like, I was experiencing what felt like the the death, suffocation, destruction, violation part of the circle.
1: Yeah.
0: And then the other day, like... I didn't have this insight until you shared that idea of the circle. But it felt like four days ago, I was on, it felt like I was on the same circle of eternity. But I was on this, like, other edge where it just felt like I, I know fundamentally everything's going to work out. Yeah. And that I'm in alignment with what's in. And if we And it's like...
1: So you can almost imagine... Half of your parts live on the left side of the circle and come alive as you move towards hope and other parts live on the other side of the circle and come alive as you move towards fear.
0: Yeah. it's like, fuck, I don't like (laughs) getting good at holding space for experiencing the parts that come up when I'm at the hardest part of the spiral. Yeah. The insight is it's, or the like, big goosebump-inducing feeling is it's like you can jailbreak a Mac or a Windows computer to run the Apple iOS, mm-hmm. but you you have to do a lot of programming work to get it to the point where it can do that. Yeah. Um, in this metaphor, we are all. Uh, Microsoft computers that run Microsoft. And that's the Kronos yeah. past, present, future. For better or for worse, do not recommend it, <laughs> but you can jailbreak your consciousness and get to the point where you can run the, like, it's so weird. It's not even like jailbreaking. It's like you're unlocking a more primal yeah. way of seeing reality that we're all a part of that is so utterly destabilizing for a masculine psyche that has gotten good at the Microsoft <laughs> shit. Like, give me the spreadsheet. I'm better than most people at it. This is where I want to stay. Yeah. And it's... um,
1: That's creation.
0: It's terrifying to the spreadsheet.
1: Yeah. I cannot
0: describe how hard it is. But it feels like this was a, a a code, if you will, or a transmission, if you will. So
1: it's not being stuck in eternity that you're scared of. It's being stuck in a feeling you don't like for eternity.
0: So what's interesting is there's multiple levels. The child part of me yeah. is afraid, but has just accepted. Yeah. Bitch, you're in eternity. Yeah. like but there is a part that's like I, I i i used to be afraid of just the fact that eternity Exit. was like yeah,
1: the concept of eternity I was like, <laughs> yeah. what the anything lasting forever right
0: so it's um this is great to try to articulate it's it's not any experience lasting forever because i feel like i've shown to myself that i can or It's the felt sense that there is no one else, Mm -hmm. that all of the distinctions between that create duality are illusory. So there are no lovers. There are no friends. (sighs) There is nothing to exchange love with. There's nothing to exchange laughter with. It's the whole thing. And that in order to get any of that, You have to forget. Mm. That's the thing. That's like, I don't like this.
1: It's aloneness. Aloneness forever. Yeah. So it's a feeling moving towards fear. The fear of being alone and the fear that you'll stay in that place forever. Everything else will disappear.
0: The fine texture, and I agree with you and I have more resolution. It's my specific like deep wound feels like the sudden realization that anything other than the eternal truth of aloneness mm. um has just been realized, so it's 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 this felt sensation of epiphany, yeah, into what's the right word um, like. To have been wrong about something for a long time. Yeah. And then the epiphany. Graham, I'm sorry, I'm eating the mic. I just realized that the epiphany brings me into a place of like, there was never hope.
1: Yeah.
0: There will never be hope.
1: It's like a betrayal of the psyche. It feels like betrayal in a way. It's like a shattering of the construct Of the mind. But if you remove all that headiness for a moment. How
0: dare you? That felt like an attack. (laughs) So the sensation I'm feeling in my body is that I've been attacked. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. But if you close your eyes
1: for a moment. And feel your weight in the chair. And all of those concepts. And ideas of eternity. And all of the spreadsheet stuff. Imagine just begins to melt down your shoulders and your neck, down into your seat. And you really just land in the weight of your body in the chair for a moment. And you take yourself to that space where everything that you sought doesn't exist there's no lovers, there's no love, there's no friends. You have awakened into the feeling that everything was an illusion and you're completely alone forever. Where do you feel that in your body? What do you notice? In your body.
0: The truth that I can feel is that I can access um, the default mode network. The caffeine is uh, too potent. Um, But I did feel my like body relax. And the main thing I feel in my body is the. Disproportionate weight distribution between my two sit bones. Mm. I can feel that there's more weight on my left sit bone. Yeah. And there's, feels like my right sit bone is kind of forward a bit and kind of uncomfortable. I can feel that my shoulders are tight, that they're always tight.
1: And you can feel that there's a disconnect almost between the feeling, like you said. Like a
0: dissociation? Oh, no. There's a direct association okay. <laughs> with the fact that I'm not, like, balanced.
1: Yeah. Like, okay.
0: the really awesome thing is I feel very connected to my body. But just because I'm connected to my body, it doesn't mean that I feel good about what I'm connected to. It's like I can feel that my yeah. hips are out of alignment. I can feel that my hip flexors are basically always tight. I can feel that my front abdominal wall, like, there's a disassociation in my front abdominal wall, for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, There's, because of the shoulder surgery I've gotten, I can just feel that my, like, fascia just wants to, like, make armor around here, like... The muscles around my shoulders are stupidly, disproportionately developed to a lot of the things that don't need to be big to protect this wound that I have in my shoulder. Um,
1: And the belly, the disassociation, that disconnect from the belly, age three to five, we develop that in front of the belly. That's why often little kids will say that they have stomach aches all the mm -hmm. time. Because they know something's wrong. And so, in there is a lot of gut instinct and intuition. And it's also where we hold that feeling of something's wrong, something's not right here. And so, that's really common. Mm. But what I'm trying to get to is okay, this idea of eternity and all that circulating around that. What's the emotion there? In that space what is the emotion
0: almost like a self-flagellating for my naivety hopelessness hmm. like there's a sprinkle of something that's not just hopelessness and the sprinkle is this like like how could you fucking not already know this okay you know so, like that emotion wrapped around this
1: feeling of—that's a story. What's the emotion? One word.
0: Hopelessness. What I'm trying to—what I'm trying to articulate is that I can feel that the resonance in my body is the word hopelessness is off okay. just a little bit, okay. and there's some word I don't know that I'm trying to give like a wrapping for. We, yeah. we can just call it green—green <laughs> green hopelessness.
1: Okay. Do you remember the first time as a child? Felt hopelessness.
0: I really, especially the texture of this, it really feels like it's that first night that I tried to comprehend what heaven meant. Mm that motherfucker. I don't know who it was that shared that story with me, but it feels. Yeah. Like I can, I was probably seven then. So the psychoanalytic part of me is like, there's something younger, but (laughs) um, I would be lying if I said that I had an earlier memory than that.
1: And somebody described to you heaven.
0: Yeah. And It was when I went home that night and I was in bed and I was processing like, okay, if I am a good boy Mm -hmm. and I do the things, what I get is um, (laughs) the story that I saw was uh, I have to wear nice church clothes every day (laughs) and I have to be around like the people I know in my life then and i'm not capable of feeling anything other than happiness but none of that was the thing yeah. that started the feeling the the feeling was my brain starting to be like all right so i would i would have to do that for a week and then another week and then another week and my brain started to run that and then just something fucking ruptured yeah and it was just like this is, this is fucked yeah. up. This it's is scary. fucked.
1: This <laughs> is scary. Yeah, yeah.
0: So okay, that's so that's the core of
1: my being. When you were seven, another word for hopelessness is fear. Let's just play with that for a moment. There's many different flavors to all of these emotions, but.
0: Yeah, The writer in me is just like that's too broad of a word, but yeah.
1: okay. But if you're seven years old, and how dare
0: you insinuate? I don't have more <laughs> words than fear,
1: but hurt. You're touching this, some part of you wants to make a joke to avoid feeling this feeling right now, maybe. Well, I
0: also did not give you consent to, to go into True, my psyche True, we did not get on, did not on a get podcast, consent.
1: but hurt. And I'm get giving consent. you my best. You. Do you know any, any children that are seven, you know, or close to seven?
0: Um, I know a five-year-old.
1: Okay. You need to close your eyes and imagine this five-year-old.
0: Why did Graham laugh at me?
1: Who is alone in his bed at night wanting to go to sleep and is feeling into the weight of needing to be a certain way, and wear certain clothing, and do certain things, and only feel certain emotions to go to heaven. And if he entertains other clothing, and other decisions, and other feelings, he will go to hell for eternity. The weight of that in a child, hopelessness, fear, whatever whatever it is, Green, hopelessness. When you felt that, who did you tell? None. That's the trauma. So now you're a small child feeling that gravity of that, completely alone, and you disconnect. Instead of sharing that and feeling that there's a parent or a loved one or an elder Mm. who you can share that fear with, you carry the weight of that alone. And the weight of that is too much to continue to be seven year old Eric and go to school and play. So a disconnect from the self happens, a disassociation from the self happens.
0: Yeah, what's interesting to feel into is there must have been. A series of disconnections before that moment because I can feel that moment. And it wasn't even an option in my menu of options to go talk about with anyone. Like, this is just me thinking about, like, you don't talk about the trying to understand what forever means. For sure. Just
1: like a child doesn't even think to go and tell mommy or daddy that something terrible happened at school with a teacher or priest or a neighbor or whoever it was. We don't even think about going to our parents, our protectors, our gods when we are seven and be like, this is what I'm going through. The
0: interesting thing. And, uh,
1: I'm done to talk about this stuff,
0: but we are on a podcast. Um, I could feel that, like, I came home every day after school and talked to my mom about what happened at school, and she was super Mm. interested. Yeah. I I think there was this weird energy around religious shit when I was young where it was like, I think, like, the animal part of me could smell on my mom that she actually didn't believe, but she didn't ever say that. Mm. And so the moment I went to church, it felt like I felt excited to like sniff out the bullshit, mm-hmm. which is an interesting thing that I've never really made conscious until now. Um, and so uh, my, the vibe in which I spoke about spirit or like religious stuff back then was like, it's so interesting how, whatever the unconscious stories of the parents are about what type of child they want, there's this unconscious reinforcement (laughs) that doesn't require any language. You know, like my mom wanted a super smart child. Mm -hmm. And a part of that story was like, he's not going to fall for religion. He's not going to fucking X, Y, and Z. And I could feel that like like the... nonverbal communication that I got is if I came home with questions about like that would poke holes, she would laugh mm. and it, it would feel good. Yeah. it would be like, Oh, I'm seeing how, why I became an atheist. Um, <laughs> validation cookies. 100%. Yeah. But that the, it's like, I didn't have the, um, I don't even know if I had the language back then, you know, like I was seven. I don't, like, I distinctly remember how it felt. Um, and it's only since I became like 26 where I would give the words back then for like, I was contemplating eternity. Bitch, you were imagining
1: <laughs> that
0: heaven that you see on all dogs go to heaven or yeah. something. Just like having to do that forever. Yeah. Um. And, and, like, the last interesting point on this, and then I would like to put up a strong boundary that we talk about yeah. other things, is I could feel that there was no part of me tracking about whether or not I would make it. Mm. that there was this like i'm I'm gonna do a dope job at this game of life type feeling like and that's obviously a joke, but there wasn't any i mean, at least in me in that time there was no fear of going to hell and I can't imagine what that would have done mm. if I had felt that there was something like fundamentally wrong with my body or something and that hell was an option. Yeah, Like what my brain did was like best possible scenario is
1: Tiff.
0: forever yeah. in church clothes. <laughs> it's just like, and the felt sense was like, yeah like a betrayal of god like a betrayment from god yeah it's like and that really is what it is like i can feel that the last time this came on super strong um i had done an excessive amount to admit of um medical grade ketamine yeah and then i paired it with cannabis and it was very ceremonial i fucking had a blindfold and i curated music and i was in the darkness and i'm like i was meaning to go deep and like the feeling was um there's a bunch of heady shit that i'm not going to bring into the conversation just for the sake of time but the feeling was i got back to that eternity moment and it was like the fundamental baseline of existence is suffering mm. it's not a circle where there's half and half <laughs> yeah. there's not uh yeah and it just felt like a simultaneous utter surrender into what is yeah. with this part being like it's almost like if you were a superhero in a video game and you do all these things for all these things and then you get to the point and it was just this like soft Falling into the abyss, Mm. just realizing, like, wow, I was wrong the entire time. Mm. There is no hope. There is no meaning. Huh? You know. Wow. So, where would you like to direct people?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, The medicine will teach us what we need to learn by using our deepest fears not to scare us but to teach us and so it feels like the nougat in this is acceptance and you're learning that more gracefully each time that you touch upon it and so seeing the gratitude like we talked about and the thing that you fear most is giving you a gift of acceptance, felt sense of acceptance, which probably ripples into everything in your life. Yeah. And that's what people ask a lot about medicine is like, oh, what, you know, why do I have to see the spider or the vision or the thing or face the thing? And it's like for some people, what they need to heal, like Neil's is that love and light and to feel the deepest level of love and trust to heal parts of themselves. And for some of us, our fears will be used as tools to teach us the lessons we want to learn. And I think over time, we can start to learn them more gracefully each time that we come back to that place, to that fear, to that thing over and over again with a little more willingness to open the door knowing what might be on the other side of it.
0: The transformation in you since when I first met you is I think one of the greatest gifts people can give other people is the demonstration of their transformation. Yeah. And so thank you for your gift. (laughs) It's potent.
1: The truth is I believe that all of us have so many angels and I had so many tools as a nutritionist and the group of Go For Your Win, finding that community and my own strength and the gift of ayahuasca and a free trip to Soltara that changed my life, like so many angels. But it literally took one person for the first time in my life at 25 years old. To see all of me and not look at me like I was broken, which changed the entire course of my life, and that was you. And now that's all I really aim to be for other people, whether it's ayahuasca in a retreat or not on a retreat at the grocery store with the guy working the checkout having true trust in people's ability to heal themselves and to get where they need to go without anything. And this is unspoken. This isn't telling them, but looking and being with somebody with that inherent trust that they are going to be okay Mm -hmm. is all people need to feel to actually heal. And the medicine is a catalyst for sure. And there's so many catalysts, but just that alone. You can go out in your life and heal every single person that you see by just having that trust in them. And that's what you did for me.
0: Your transformation is the best uh, thank you uh, that I could receive. And so you're welcome. (laughs) And thank you.
1: Yeah.
0: And keep carrying it forward. Thank you. Where can people go to check out if they're interested in uh, vomiting and shitting with you in (laughs) darkness?
1: Um, Yeah. So I live in Peru in the Sacred Valley with my partner, Niels. We own and operate a plant medicine retreat project called Anamkara. We host intimate size small group ayahuasca retreats served by some incredible families of Shipibo healers and we also offer San Pedro Huachuma retreats served by some really amazing Huachumeros from the Andes. We really try to focus on weaving together trauma-informed techniques, compassionate inquiry that we've both learned through Dr. Gaber Mate. And also a lot of of focus on somatic experiencing techniques, which all support the medicine work really beautifully. If anyone is interested in exploring plant medicine done in a safe and more intimate, personalized way, they can reach out to us. We offer retreats right now in the Sacred Valley and out in the Amazon jungle for those who want that experience. By the end of this year, we'll have offerings in Mexico as well. So we offer a pretty unique, supportive preparation program, and all of our workshops include three full months of both one-on-one and group integration support with Niels and myself. So we really like to focus on not just the retreat experience, but deepening our relationship with each guest and making sure they feel fully supported after the retreat in the months that follow as their process continues. So people have interest or they need support, if they've had a plant medicine experience that they're not sure how to integrate or they're interested in going deeper, they can find us online at our website, which is AnamkaraHealingRetreats.com or on Instagram at Retreats, Or they can reach out to me and my private Instagram, which is followyourbliss. you got some good Instagram handles. <laughs> people haven't read the book Anamkara by John O'Donoghue. I can't recommend it more than anything else. It's an incredible, incredible book. And we chose to name the retreat after, it's a Gaelic term, Anam Kara. It means, Anam means soul, and Kara in English means kin, like friend. But the term in Gaelic, we actually don't have a name in English for it. It means somebody that you knew in another lifetime who you've forgotten. Who visits you in this lifetime as a stranger to help you remember who you truly are. Bang, bang. We need a word for that. That's so okay.
0: I heard a quote yesterday and it's um translating poetry is like taking a shower with a raincoat on. <laughs> and it's just like you yeah. you just, you know, like we'll just let the word be the word. Yeah. Anam. Anamkara.
1: Anamkara. Anamkara. Retreats, Love that. And um, yeah, as well for people maybe where ayahuasca or San Pedro, Wachuma isn't for them. You know, there's a lot of.
0: No, it's for everyone and it's the best. Yeah, and, and you it's should good. definitely
1: do it. We're all white. Um,
0: Damn, you're really coming for the people
1: that look so <laughs> don't like it. We offer a lot as well. You know, integration, coaching, preparation, coaching for people that If you've had a medicine experience and you're not sure how to hold that or what to do with that, there's also support there for you. I think for a lot of people, they feel that they have to go back for more and more ceremonies. And there's a lot of work that you can do outside the ceremony space, learning to be with yourself and hold emotions. And so...
0: Have you seen the meme of it's like an old school painting of a woman in like a beautiful dress and she's turned away and she looks all... Exacerbated and she's blindfolded. And in the side of the meme that she's turned to, it's uh, escaping into radical spiritual experiences. (laughs) And then her hand is outstretched to the other direction, and there's a sword that she could grab. And above the sword, it says, um, integrating daily practices that lead to real transformation. (laughs) Yeah. It's really good. Feels like a good meme. Yeah. I mean, it's rememorable. On that note, We've murdered the energy of the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much, Francesca, for the work that you've done and for sharing your story. Thanks, Eric. And this is officially the first time that she's ever recorded something from a microphone, and she was super awkward at the beginning. Before we got on air, she pretended like she didn't know how to put her face next to a microphone, and I then she I was ended up crushing touch the it. microphone. But I actually didn't the whole time. So. It was actually me fucking eating the microphone, <laughs> and Graham never gave me feedback. I had to feel it on my goddamn chest or on my chin but he's just so good at designing it's the audio. beard
1: it's just the beard
0: it's my lack of spatial awareness because my fa- okay anyways y'all have a great day thank you for joining love love
1: thank you